Julie. Thank you very much indeed, Julie. Before we look more closely at this passage together, uh, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this historical account, this historical document that has been preserved for our benefit. And we pray that as we look together at it today, we would see the timeless truths that it contains about you, about your character, about your love for us, and about how you work in the world. And we pray that we would each be blessed through what we see in your word. Please, we pray, do that work in our hearts and lives through your spirit, to your glory. Amen. Nabel Qureshi was born into a zealous Muslim family. Although living in America, they had originated from Pakistan and traced their ancestry back to the tribe of Muhammad. Nabel grew up in a, as a zealous and devout Muslim. He scrupulously observed the traditions and the rituals of Islam. He had a passion to convert others to the Muslim faith, and he was derisory of Christians. Then when he went to university in America, he made a close friend called David Woods. And David, lo and behold, turned out to be a Christian. Nabel later recalled, and I quote, David didn't react like other Christians I had challenged. He did not waver in his witness, nor did he waver in his friendship with me. Far from it. He became even more engaged, answering the questions he could respond to, investigating the questions he couldn't respond to, and spending time with me through it all. Uh, David challenged Nabel to research the historical basis of the Christian faith. And over the next three years, that's what Nabel did. After much study, he finally concludes that the case for Christianity is strong. David then challenged Nabel to apply the same critical rigor to Islam. When Nabel did this, disconcertingly, he found the foundations were frail and flawed. He recounts, and I quote, I had learned about Muhammad from imams and my parents, not from the historical sources themselves. When I finally read the sources, I found that Muhammad was not the man I thought. Violence and sensuality dripped from the pages of his earliest biographies the life stories of the man I revered as the holiest in history. Over the months that followed, Namel wrestled with and mourned the decision he knew he would have to make. He observed the following. For Muslims, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It is a call to die. By becoming a Christian... Not only would I lose all connections with the Muslim community around me, my family would lose their honour as well. My decision would not only destroy me, it would also destroy my family, the ones who loved me most and sacrificed so much for me. The cost of Nobel giving his life to Christ was excruciatingly high, and yet that is what Nobel eventually did. Uh, you can read his full story, and it's a fascinating uh, life journey in his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. 
that Nabel became a Christian is a miracle. Or miraculously, it is a work of God. He was steeped in his Islamic culture and religious prejudices, yet against all odds, God overcame them to bring him to Christ. Now, 2,000 years ago, again, God had to overcome similarly entrenched cultural and religious prejudices. This time, they were Jewish. And this was absolutely necessary if the good news of Jesus was to go out from Jerusalem into the whole world. And that it did so is something sh- nothing short of a miracle, as we're going to see. More accurately, it was a work of God. Uh, firstly, a bit of uh, cultural background. Uh, by the time of Jesus, Jews hated and despised non-Jews. Uh, the technical term for non-Jews is Gentiles. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, God had constantly affirmed his love and his concern for all the nations of the world. Uh, the book of Jonah is just one example of that. Uh, it's true that God had chosen Israel to be his special people, but the question is this, what was their function as his special chosen people? The Old Testament reveals clearly it was to be a light to the nations. Israel was ultimately to draw the nations to the worship of the one true God. Therefore, God had a heart for all the nations of the world. However, the tragedy was this. That truth had become twisted. Israel had reinterpreted their divine election as divine favoritism. And they'd become filled as a result with racial and religious pride and hatred. They despised the Gentiles. They actually called them dogs. And they developed traditions that kept them apart. Any contact with a Gentile was considered a sin. Uh, No Orthodox Jew would even dare to enter the house of a Gentile. You wouldn't believe it, but it was even forbidden for a Jew to help a Gentile mother in childbirth. For to do so was to bring another pagan into the world. So you see, this was the cultural and religious climate in which Peter had been raised. And yet ultimately, you can't stop the purposes of God. And so we see God pressing those early Jewish Christians to move out of Jerusalem. And he presses them to move beyond the fringe of their prejudice. And he directs them to hold out this good news of Jesus even to the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 10, we see something very startling. God bringing together the prejudiced Peter, a Jew, and the searching centurion, a Gentile. Now, I don't know if you watch much TV. Uh, If you do, then maybe you're familiar with the popular TV action series 24. You can see a few people. Flick of recognition. Others looking a bit uh, blank. But let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, It stars uh, Kiefer Sutherland as Jack Bauer, a counter-terrorist agent. Uh, Each season of these films uh, follows Jack's exploits over a 24-hour period, hence why it's called 24. Uh, Jack races against the clock to thwart some evil terrorist cell and to save America from certain destruction. Uh, In good Hollywood style, of course, uh, Jack always prevails. I hope I haven't spoiled the plot for you if you haven't yet seen the series. But each episode traces the parallel lives of the terrorists and Jack with his counter-terrorist unit. 
And eventually, these two sets of lives intersect. Uh, the technical term for this sort of uh, this genre of film is real-time narration. Each of the characters is followed in real time. Now, Acts chapter 10 reads a bit like an episode of 24. It's a real-time narration. It traces the parallel lives of a Gentile, a searching centurion, and a Jew, the prejudiced Peter. And eventually, these two lives will intersect. And overseeing it all is God. And God is going to ensure that all the events dovetail perfectly to achieve his purposes. Now let me give you a brief roadmap as to where we're going to go this morning. Uh, firstly, what we're going to do is we're going to look more closely at the unfolding drama 2,000 years ago. We're going to see, actually, you could break it down into three sections. Uh, firstly, uh, God prepares the seeking centurion. Uh, secondly, God prepares the prejudiced Peter. And thirdly, finally, Peter, pre Peter preaches to the seeking centurion. Once having seen that, we're then going to move it to ourselves today, and we're going to reflect on the significance of these events for us today. So, let's go back in time, 2,000 years. And let's firstly see how God prepares the seeking centurion. His name's Cornelius. He's a Roman military officer. He's a Gentile, and he's living in the Gentile city of Caesarea. Yet something has drawn Cornelius to Judaism. We are told that he is, and I quote, a God-fearer. He has turned his back on the pantheon of Roman gods, and he has now become a monotheistic God-fearer. We're told he was devout, he was generous, he was prayerful. However, whilst he was respected by the Jews, he was still a Gentile. He was still uncircumcised, and therefore he was still unclean in the eyes of Jews. And God gives Cornelius special instructions via an angel. Send. Send for a man. His name is Peter. And so, immediately, Cornelius obeys. You don't disobey an angel. And he sends a delegation. Meanwhile, 50 kilometers away, God was preparing the prejudiced Peter. God gives him a vision. He sees the heavens opened and a sheet being let down. And the sheet contains clean and unclean animals. Now here again, a bit of religious background is helpful. The Jewish Old Testament law forbade Jews to eat certain meats. It was one of the ways that Israel remained distinct from the surrounding nations. Now, the list was wider than just ham and pork. The acceptable animals were classed as clean, and the unacceptable animals were classed as unclean. Now, for a Jew to eat an unclean animal was the grossest act of spiritual defilement you could think of. Think of the worst food you would prefer to eat, or prefer not to eat as the case may be, and the revulsion you may feel. Well, that was nothing compared to how a Jew would feel at the prospect of eating an unclean meat type. And so, you see, it is with a sense of mortifying disbelief that Peter hears those words. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Peter's response reveals he hasn't quite understood the lesson of the vision. He says to the Almighty God, Surely not, Lord. 
to which God responds in verse, 20, in verse 14. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. What is God's point? What is the lesson? God is saying this, Peter, this distinction between clean and unfood, clean, uh, unfood, let me start again. Peter, this distinction between clean foods and unclean foods is over. It's abolished. There is now re no restriction on what you eat, but also no restriction on whom you eat with. Peter, do not shun Gentiles as unclean, for through Christ I am going to make both Jews and Gentiles clean, spiritually clean, before me. And in God's perfect timing, the world now of prejudiced Peter and the seeking centurion, they collide. Uh, Cornelius' delega Gentile delegation arrive. God's Holy Spirit says to Peter, go with them. And so he does, although no doubt with considerable apprehension. And now, against all odds, Peter the Jew preaches to Cornelius and his household, the Gentiles. As he enters Cornelius' house, uh, his opening remark is hardly designed to endear him to his audience. Verse 28, he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? It's interesting that if you read the earlier chapters of the book of Acts, which charts the history of what happened before this, we see a Peter in action amongst his own people, the Jews. And he is a dynamic, bold evangelist. He takes the opportunity, any opportunity, to hold the good news of Jesus out to his own people. But now, in the presence of Gentiles, he seems to be dragging the chain. He says to them, uh, why have you sent for me? He hasn't yet twigged that the good news of Jesus could be actually for these Gentiles too. But then Cornelius recounts about what God has been doing in his life and finally for Peter, the penny drops. Verse 34. Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And in response, Peter tells him the good news of Jesus. Peter tells Cornelius and his household about the gospel. And it's a very pithy and beautiful, if you like, executive summary of the Christian message. What does he do? Uh, firstly, he goes back to where Nabel went. He goes back to the historical facts of Jesus. He was a real man. He lived, he died, and he was raised back to life. And Peter himself says, look, I am a witness of that. But Peter doesn't stop there, because then he moves to the implications of these historical facts. And he basically says, look, the risen Jesus is now judge of the world, and therefore a, res a response is required now of all people. 
to make peace with him now, to have our sins forgiven now. Look again at verse 42, at the tail end of Peter's sermon. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, this is Jesus, whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Cornelius and his household, they listen on tender hooks to Peter's words and they respond in belief and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And wonderfully, through their trust in Christ, the unclean have become clean before God. It's as if the defiling stain of their sin has been washed away. And so, uh, symbolically, they acknowledge this spiritual washing through being baptised with water, which is a significant thing to reflect on in our service today. Verse 47. Peter says, Can anyone keep these people from being baptised with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. For Peter the Jew to be accepting these men and women as brothers and sisters in Christ, do you see? It is huge. It's a miracle. More accurately, it's a work of God. So what are the timeless truths about God that we see here? As we bring it to ourselves today, what is the significance of these events for us today? Two points to draw in conclusion. Firstly, all people are loved by Jesus. And secondly, all people need Jesus. Firstly, all people are loved by Jesus. Poor Peter, he suffered from the blight of spiritual pride and prejudice as did many Jews. For Peter, he assumed God's love has boundaries and that they, the Jews, were on the inside and that all the non-Jews were on the outside. But then we've seen that wonderfully, Peter has what we call today a paradigm shift. His world and his understanding of this issue is completely turned around. Uh, Again, verse 34, Peter says, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but he accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You see the point? Jesus loves all people, all people without exception. There's not a person in the world whom God does not love. Jesus' love, it is not corralled by ethnic boundaries Jesus loves the Tasmanians as well as the Australians. (laughs) Hard to believe, I know. He loves the indigenous people, Middle Eastern people, and even the English. (laughs) Jesus' love is not corralled by social economic boundaries. He loves white-collar workers. He loves blue-collar workers. He loves those who have no work, and he loves those who have Immoral work, even. Jesus' love is not corralled by moral boundaries. He loves those who have made good moral choices in their life. 
but he also loves those who have made bad moral choices in their life. Jesus' love, it is not corralled by religious boundaries. Jesus loves the Muslims. Jesus loves the Hindus. Jesus loves the Sikhs. Jesus loves the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus loves the Mormons. So here's the question. Is there anyone that you view as being beyond Jesus' love? Is there anyone of whom you think, surely God could not love that person? And if you're particularly down on yourself, maybe you think, surely God could not love me. But he does, you know. Because Jesus loves all people. So that's the first thing we see here. Jesus loves all people. And the second thing we see is, all people need Jesus. Are there any who are religious enough or moral enough to not need Jesus? Uh, Nabel Qureshi was a very devout Muslim, but he still needed to trust in Jesus. Cornelius was a very devout Gentile God-fearer, but he still needed to trust in Jesus. And the unfolding drama recorded in Acts chapter 10 shows that God was at work in Cornelius' life. But make no mistake, that work of God in his life did not start in Acts chapter 10. It was undoubtedly the climax of a long road, and it may have stretched back over many, many years. I mean, it would have probably started when uh, Cornelius was given the posting to Judea, the land of the Jews. And then, as a result, uh, Cornelius came to an understanding of the Jewish God and became drawn to him, to him. And he then became a devout, generous, prayerful, monotheist, a God-fearer. But he was still a Gentile. He feared and respected and wanted to worship the God of Judaism, but he was still only a God-fearer. Now here's the point. God had moved him to the place of being a devout God-fearer, but God did not leave him there. God was taking Cornelius on a spiritual journey, but being devout and upright was not the end point. God moved Cornelius onto the one who filled, fulfilled all his yearnings for God, and that was Jesus. Cornelius needed to hear the message of Jesus, and he needed to respond to the message of Jesus. Again, verse 43. The message was this. Everyone who believes in him, that is Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, Jesus was the only one who could make him clean, acceptable before God. Being a God-fearer was not enough. Now, we may have friends or family who would fall into this category of God-fearer like Cornelius. They have a respect for God. They have a desire in their heart for God or to search for God. They have a church involvement. They're generous people. They're charitable people. They are prayerful people, just like 
Cornelius. And if that is evident in their life, it's likely that that is evidence of God's work in their life. But they are on a road, and God doesn't want to leave them there. Being a moral, generous God-fearer is not the end point. They need to hear the good news of Jesus, they need to respond, and they need to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. How will God bring them to this point? How will he bring them to this point? He's going to use his people. He's going to, if you trust in Christ, he's going to use you, and he's going to use me. The angel appears to Cornelius. God has got Cornelius' attention. Why didn't the angel say to Cornelius the gospel? Why didn't the angel say to Cornelius, you need to trust in Jesus? Instead, he says, go find a man, Peter. Send for Peter. Do you see, the normal way that God works in his world is through his people, through his Christians, people who trust in Christ. That is the way that he invites others to join the kingdom. That was true for Nabal. That friend, Christian friend David Woods was the means by which God worked in his life and drew him eventually to a true understanding of Jesus. And that is true for us today. If we trust in Christ, God is saying to us, who have I placed in your life who you need to share the good news of Jesus to? And when we think about that question, we realize the boundaries of whom that may be are infinite. There is nobody who can say, no, that person is outside of that boundary because God loves all people. All people are loved by Jesus and all people need Jesus. May he do that wonderful work in each of our lives and then through us in the lives of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing work we see in history, in particular in Acts chapter 10, the way that you worked in that situation to bring these Gentiles into your kingdom and to overcome pride and prejudice which had been so deep-seated. And we thank you you continue that work today. And we pray, therefore, continue that glorious work in us and through us. May we hold out this beautiful message of forgiveness of sins who trust in Christ to all who you place in our spheres of life, whether they be family or friends. And we ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and to your glory. Amen.